Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. The Greenhouse Show on KSL News Radio. Good morning. Thanks for joining us for The Greenhouse Show. Spending your Saturday morning with us, Maria Shaleos, Tom Bettis, Sheridan Hansen with you this morning from the USU Botanical Center. We've been talking about seeds and unusual seeds and all things seeds right now. Uh, we do have some listeners who are asking questions about seeds. So the first one is when do you start geranium seeds? Soon. Yeah, very soon. They take a while. Now. Now. Start them now. And you were saying the seeds and pellets are better. Tell us about that. Yeah, especially with petunias. A lot of your seed, if it's hard to germinate, uh, like carrots, um, petunias, uh, parsnips, any seed that's really small, I'm seeing more and more companies introduce what are called pelletized seeds. And it's a little gel coating that's dry around the seed, but it will hydrate and then take a while to break down, but it provides hydration to the seed so it increases your germination rates. And so if homeowners are growing petunias and they don't have mist benches, which most don't, I always recommend pelletized seeds just because they're so much more forgiving than trying to germinate a little almost microscopic petunia seed. Oh, and I wish I had had pelleted seeds with what I was planting this last week. So I was getting some perennials started for our cut flower garden. And oh my gosh, they were so small. (laughs) It would have made it so much easier. Mm -hmm. Our next listener says, when growing perennials from seed versus a cutting, can they still be considered the same cultivar? For example, growing the Munstead lavender from seed, are they still Munstead true to seed or do any... Do they have some sort of variation? It depends on if you bought seed that said Munstead as compared to collecting them off the perennial because it could very well have hybridized or been pollinated by another variety of lavender and it would come back as something totally different. And so it just depends on where the pollen source came from if you're collecting your own. Uh, Next listener says they had left Halloween pumpkins in the garage. Uh, They're kind of rotting. And they want to know if the seeds are still good to keep to plant this year. Oh, that's that's a tough one. If they've rotted, um, I would tend to get new fresh seed um, just because you can introduce some pathogens that may be there into your plants and maybe have some, you know, difficulty growing them. Um, In that kind of situation, I'd always start clean and fresh. Okay. Uh, We have a couple of questions that aren't seed-related here. Uh, This person says um, they have an Austrian pine, which at this point has more than a third of the the tree growing. Uh, Oh, they've fought an invasive weed with large blades at the base and at the set. Okay. I'm going to have to read this through. This is really long. Do we need them to call in? I do need you to call in. If you're listening, please call in. 
Uh, your text is just really very complicated, and it would be much easier if you would call in on that one. Um, the texts are really great if you have a question and maybe a, a quick comment. But if they go on for more than five or six lines, I tend to just get lost in all the information. Well, an autocorrect gets people also. And uh, Next person wants to know, does snow in the valleys matter or is rain in the valleys in the winter sufficient? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, and it honestly... I mean, everything contributes to groundwater, right? And, Ton, you can jump in here um, and save me at any moment. So (laughs) everything contributes to groundwater. The biggest thing is our snowpack. So um, making sure that we have water in the areas that actually feed into our water and will eventually feed into that Great Salt Lake. So we want to see that snowpack up in the mountains. That's the most critical thing. Um, You know, getting water in the valley in the form of rain is never really a bad thing, but... It goes into the ground, and it may eventually make it into Utah Lake or the Great Salt Lake as it follows bedrock. Mm -hmm. But I think that rain in the valleys isn't nearly as, when I say challenging or detrimental, if we start getting rain at high elevation, that water then quickly absorbs into the soil or runs off. And when you're at higher elevations, that snow melts slowly and it gives us a lot of time to collect water in reservoirs. And so for me, I think you're right that it's critical to have that snow at higher elevations and it's less critical at low elevation because we can't grow anything until it's melted off. Absolutely. But if it does recharge the groundwater... You know, it it may be that it your water table is a little higher, and so the plants can access it a little more easily. Yeah, and we want to see that snow in the mountains, and we want to stay, see it stay cold. So yes, for as long as possible. Next listener wants to know: Are foxglove seeds really poisonous? Yes, they are. Um, in fact, I was planting some this week. That's one of the teeny tiny seeds I was planting, um, and um, it says right on the packages that this is a poisonous seed and by purchasing the seed and planting the seed, you are liable. Our company isn't. So yes, be very careful. They derive digitalin, which is a heart uh, drug from the foxglove plant. And if you took that in, it would really mess things up. Yeah. We don't want that. No. <laughs> uh, next person wants to know, what are some of your favorite perennials to grow from seed? This is Chris in Syracuse that would like this to This is know. all you. This is all me. Oh my so gosh. There are so many. I mean, so... The perennials that I'm growing from seed this year are, um, well, I'm growing biennials and perennials. So biennials have that two-year life cycle. Perennials are longer than two years. But um, I've started, I've mentioned uh, Digitalis or Foxglove, and that's a biennial. Um, I've got Larkspur, which can also be, you know, depending on the climate, that one can go two years. Um, but I'm also growing Sea Holly this year, which is kind of fun. It's kind of thistly looking and gives you some really cool texture um, if you're using it as a cut flower. There are so many different things. A lot of the herbs can be perennialized, so you can do lavenders and rosemaries and um, so many different things. So I, when people ask me what my favorites are, it, it's like trying to pick your favorite child. I really don't have one or my favorite kind <laughs> They're of They're all your favorite. <laughs> I mean, it's all my favorites. So um, anything that I can grow and watch go from seed to plant, it just, it makes my heart happy and that becomes my favorite. So honestly. So it changes, doesn't it? Does. It does. <laughs> Whatever's blooming at that moment right. is my favorite. Okay. 100%. Uh, Ron is on the line in East Mill Creek. Good morning, Ron. What is your question? Well, I, I missed a little bit what the gentleman was saying earlier. Some 1021 
some some plant or some tomato that was ten percent. Well, it, the tomato you have to purchase the seeds from Johnny's. It's the only source for the public, and it's called B H N. B is in boy. B is in boy. BHN. H is in Hector. N is in Nancy. And then one zero two one ten twenty one. One zero. Now is that is that a seed you're telling me? Yep, it's tomato seed. You have to start them yourself because nobody locally carries them. Okay, I don't want to. I I I'm an old timer. I've been planting celebrity and early girl forever. And I would stick with that. They're great varieties. You'll get plenty of production. It's just that this BHN is a commercial variety that's kind of bred for really warm areas, and its claim to fame is that it's as productive as celebrity, but it doesn't crack. But since nobody locally carries these um, plants as starts, you have to start it yourself. And that kind of discourages people. And so, okay, so celebrity is good enough. I'd stick no with suggestion it. to replace my celebrity and my early girl. You're not going to really beat those varieties for what they do. Unless you want to start your own seed. No, I don't. I don't. I, I love to plan about May 15th and harvest about August 7th and finish about November 15th. Yeah, and so those are great varieties. One other, if you like the earlier tomatoes, I've grown 4th of July. It's it's an okay tomato, but I like it because I usually get it between the first and second week of July. And those first tomatoes of the season are just so good. And so even if you just put one in, if you're just growing some, you know, fairly common standard varieties aren't bad. I think 4th of July is one that's pretty decent. Okay, I've done 4th of July before. And it was okay. I thought it was about yeah, like her early They're growth. little. Yeah. If you can get them in and the weather's right, they'll ripen, at least in my experience, two or three weeks ahead of early girl. Okay. I think that's very helpful. I was... I was all ready to go to BHN 1021. But yeah, no. and, and it's a good variety, but you have to be willing to grow it yourself. Okay. Thank you very all much. All right, Ron. Thanks for your call this morning. Uh, next listener would like you to expand, Tana, what you were talking about, uh, the gardening boxes and replacing the soil. Um, they say that they are adding like an inch plus of compost every year. Does it still need to be replaced every two to three years? Their boxes are like one and a half, one to two and a half feet deep and four by four. You know, I would say that if you're amending the soil, like what they're doing, then it's probably okay as long as you are refreshing, replenishing, amending, um, and making sure that you don't have that dip in nutrient availability um, for the plants in that soil. Um, you're keeping that soil from being tired. And what you're doing is, you know, really sustainable practice by adding to what you already have. And so when I was mentioning that, is, is if they had let it used it for three years straight and done nothing, then you dig it out and replace it. Because when it's that old and you've done nothing with it, it's lost its qualities that you want or is losing them. And then it's, you have a higher likelihood of having diseases in there, root diseases that are har being harbored as, as spores. And so replacing it every three years. But with what Sheridan's recommending, it's almost like keeping the oil changed on your car. Yeah. All right, we need to take a break. We're going to come back. When we come back, Kyle and Scott, you are up next. Number to call 801-575-8255. You can also text us 57500. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish 
changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Good morning. Thanks for spending your Saturday morning with the KSL Greenhouse. Maria Ton and Sheridan with you this morning. Kyle has been waiting very patiently on the line. He's in Orem. Kyle, what is your question? Hey, uh, uh, my neighbor has some great vines, beautiful cornforts. And uh, when can I take a clipping from that and stick it in the ground? Now, but you don't just stick it in the ground. It won't grow. You're going to need to put it in a pot full of potting soil or vermiculite. That's and you need something at least a foot to eight inches long, probably. And so, my recommendation would be go down to a local garden center and just buy a Concord vine for ten bucks, because you can plant it immediately. Because you're a year to eighteen months out on those clippings, even being viable enough to survive outside over the winter. And so it does sound like a reasonable option until you start getting into all the details and then you find out it's just easier and cheaper to go buy some Concords that are genetically the same as your neighbors and just get them going. Gotcha. Um, They're for my grandpa. Well, in that case, I would hop on and watch some YouTube videos on great propagation. Um, Michael Karen is our grape specialist and, you know, it's one of those things that he could probably walk you through all the details on it. And you could email him if you just, if you Google Michael Karen and USU, um, he could walk you through that. And so they have some sentimental value on that way, but you're probably going to need to invest 30 or $40 into enough materials and equipment to be successful to do it. And that would be minimally. Awesome. All right. You guys have a good day. Just so you know, Karen isn't spelled the way you think. It's spelled C-A-R-O-N, right? Correct. Michael, C-A-R-O-N. All right. Uh, Thank you for your call. Next person wants to know your opinion of a no-dig garden, and would you control squash bugs in a no-dig garden? So there's a lot of controversy surrounding no-dig gardens. So the whole idea behind it is this, you know, I'm taking care of the soil. I'm not going to break it apart. I'm not going to run a tiller through it, and I'm going to allow that the microbes and the insects, the opportunity to, to really boost the soil health in that sense. So there's a lot of research also, though, that says when you pile all the organic matter on top of that no-dig garden um, and expect that to break down, it can reduce water flow through the soil profile. So there are pros and cons to that no-dig garden situation. Um, so it's something... You know, it's kind of a personal decision whether you do that or not. Um, but, um, you know, it's it's not something that I typically do myself. Um, let me make sure that I'm answering their question, though, completely. What they just it? wanted to know your opinion. Oh, my opinion. Okay, yeah. so that's my opinion. And Mike, <laughs> will it control squash bugs? Oh, will it control squash bugs? Um, no. So... 
that was the second piece that I couldn't remember what you said. So sorry. Um, so will it control squash bugs? And the answer is no, because squash bugs will get down into that that debris and that organic matter. And that's a place for them to hide, to overwinter, to really get some good reproduction going on. And, um, you know, you're going to end up having an explosion of squash bugs. So if you're trying to deal with an insect issue, it's better to incorporate organic matter into the soil maybe once a year sometimes twice. It just kind of depends on your soil. Take really good care of the soil. Be be cautious on how much you till and make sure you till at the right time. We don't want to till soil that's too wet. Um, that breaks down soil structure. So, you know, just being really mindful about how you incorporate those things. And then dealing with insects will be a little easier for you. Yeah. I've read that no-till, like big farm operations that have gone that direction have had s- increases in certain weeds like field bindweed that are much harder to control where some tilling will help a little bit occasionally you know and so as Sheridan said it's a mixed bag Michael Karen does no till mm-hmm. in his yard and is happy with it but he doesn't really do a lot of extension extensive vegetable cultivation or growing and but he uses no-till and he's been happy with it but for i think it's very situational i think it is and it's a very personal choice i mean you can be on one side of the fence or the other so okay we have just two minutes left i'm going to live dangerously try to squeeze scott in here good morning scott what was your question yeah i live in morgan and we got that blight is that what it was that got in the tomatoes last year that killed a lot of them or, or was it something else that i'm yeah, th- there were a couple of diseases that it could have been. Um, we had problems with Fusarium, Phytophthora. They were um, fungal pathogens. How can I prevent that this year? So crop rotation will help you. Um, if, if I you, do that. Okay, so that's a great thing. Make sure. So we had like the perfect storm last year. We had a wet, cold spring, which delayed planting, which caused, you know, the kind of this uprise of bad microbial um organisms in the soil that that really damage the tomatoes so crop rotate make sure you get them in at the right time if the soil's too wet hold those tomatoes if you can um anything else you want to add plant on top of a hill because those heat up faster yeah and make sure you're using disease resistant tomatoes if you've had problems absolutely yeah okay this is the first year that i've had problems with them before i moved from east layton myself and i think you said you grew in east layton right yes yeah. yeah. Make sure you're planting around the 1st of June instead of mid-May. Yeah, you're going to be a little bit behind the Wasatch Front dates. Right, we yeah. are. Yeah, so, so um, and that okay. BHN 1021 that Ton was mentioning is resistant to a lot of those problems. Okay, All right. would you cover them? Would you cover them to make sure nothing gets to them or not? No, it, it doesn't have any impact on it, so... All right, Scott, thanks so much for your call this morning. We are out of time. Have a great weekend, you two. Thanks for uh, playing along this morning. Thank you, and thanks, Sheridan. Thanks for having me. Okay, join us again next week for the KSL Greenhouse 8 to 11. You can also catch us on podcast. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear-gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind, only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do? 
in the face of an international disaster decades in the making. That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.